atonement or to atone. Salvation. What is it? How do I receive it? Why do I need to receive it? But this it? is the will of God, even your sanctification. Shout glory to God, somebody! Welcome to the finale of our Church Words sermon series. Today we discuss salvation. And let us begin with Isaiah the prophet's words in chapter 25. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wines, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheep that covers all the nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. I grew up playing Monopoly. First of all, it's important to note that I was always the thimble. I don't know why. Now, there are lots of strategies to win in Monopoly. Uh, some people kind of buy every property that they land on, but by the end of the game, it doesn't really work because they're broke. Uh, some never buy any properties, but they buy like utilities and railroads, but you can't build houses and hotels on them. My strategy was to buy a whole street, okay? Properties, utilities, Railroads build off of there. That way, if they, unless they roll like a huge number, I'm getting paid. They're gonna land on something. And growing up, we added another rule to the game of Monopoly. We said that in Monopoly, you can cheat as long as you don't get caught. And so somebody would pass go, and they're like, I get $200. And as I'm giving them the money, I'm skimming off the top. Here's 200 for you and 300 for me. There you go. Uh, stealing from the bank was always much easier than stealing from other players. But if you went to the bathroom during the game or you took a phone call, you had better count your money before you stepped away from the table. Now, my strategy, everyone's strategy, was at the mercy of dice because it's all chance. You can have the best strategy and the most money, but then you roll doubles three times in a row and you go to jail or you land on the go to jail space, or you draw the go to jail card from the community chest or the chance pile. And when you go to jail, you do not pass go and you do not collect $200. You go straight to jail and then you're stuck. You lose three turns and, and going to jail, it's tough to recover from. Now there are three ways to get out of jail. You can pay $50, but $50 in monopoly money isn't chump change or you can try and roll doubles, but you only have a 16.667% chance of rolling doubles. Okay, I was always so cheap in Monopoly that I was always trying to roll doubles and never pay the $50, but the odds were against me. That is, of course, unless you've got a get out of jail free card. Oh boy, did this come in handy. You land on the go to jail spot, and everyone's like, oh, you go to jail, and then you whip out this card like you're a magician. Oh, contraire, mo frere. I've got this very special card, a get out of jail free card. And the card serves its purpose. It gets you out of jail. 
And then you could go on keeping buying more properties, stealing more money until you win. Now you too can win at life and win at eternity with your own get out of jail free card. It's called salvation, but it's not getting out of jail free. It's getting out of hell free. And it's not really free because Jesus has paid the price for it. And once you get this card, once you make this transaction, you can go right along your merry little way, buying properties, stealing money. Now, I think you can probably tell that I'm being a bit facetious. A get out of hell free card looks nothing like the salvation described in Isaiah 25. A feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. How did this grandiose salvation become a transaction? For far too long in my own Christian journey, I believe that the only thing that mattered in life was salvation. Am I saved? Are you saved? Are they saved? Am I born again? Are you born again? Are they born again? I was obsessed with these questions. A study was done taking uh, a poll where uh, the researcher would name a famous person and then the person being interviewed would ask whether or not this person was in heaven or not or would be in heaven or not. And they asked hundreds of people, Okay, here are the top three people, according to the percentage of people interviewed, that will actually be in heaven when we die, okay? Number three, with a whopping 60%, Oprah. 60% of the people said that Oprah was going to be there. Number two, uh, 79%, Mother Teresa, okay? 79% thought that she was going to make the cut, which means 21% of the people didn't think Mother Teresa was in. But higher than Mother Teresa, higher than Oprah, a whopping 90% of the people thought that they themselves would get into heaven. Isn't that fascinating? Is he saved? I don't know. Is she saved? I think so. What about them? Maybe. Are you saved? Yes. Yes, I am. Today, as we explore what the Bible says about salvation, I want to be very clear. The Bible's portrait of salvation is not getting your ticket stamped to heaven. It's not a get out of hell free card. It's not just a personal conversion experience. It's bigger and better than that. The Greek word for salvation is soteria. Deliverance, salvation, welfare, prosperity, preservation, safety. In both Testaments, when the Bible speaks of salvation, it's never as a get out of hell free card. It's not a heavenly transaction. Rather, there is always an earthly dimension to our salvation. Salvation is not a one night stand, a, a ticket to heaven, a sinner's prayer prayed once upon a time. Salvation is what happens as the story of Jesus intersects and becomes enfolded into our story. Salvation is what continues to happen as we live our lives out of the life that we have in Jesus. Salvation is both personal and social. Salvation is God saving what he has lost. Salvation is the Lord's salvation. And the Lord's salvation is not an evacuation project, but a restoration project. 
New Testament theologian N.T. Wright says it this way. As long as we see salvation in terms of going to heaven when we die, the main work of the church is bound to be seen in terms of saving souls for that future. But when we see salvation as the New Testament sees it, in terms of God's promised new heavens and new earth, and of our promised resurrection to share in that new and gloriously embodied reality, then the main work of the church here and now demands to be rethought in consequence. I agree. What does Jesus say? Jesus doesn't quite use the word soteria very often. Actually, he only uses it twice. Once in chatting with a promiscuous woman at a well from a despised group of people, and another time with a tax collector. But Jesus does get asked that what, what, what needs to happen for us to get eternal life. And this story is told in multiple gospels. We're gonna look at Matthew chapter 19. It's the story of the rich young man. Starting at verse 16, now a man came up to Jesus and asked, teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied. There's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones, the man inquired. Jesus replied, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Here in this passage, a rich man comes up to Jesus and asks, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Now, for many Christians, this is the only question in life that matters. And think about that for a second. The only question that matters in this life is how to get to the next? Is this really the question that is the focus of the Hebrew Scriptures and the New Testament? See, now is the perfect opportunity for Jesus to give a clear, straightforward answer to the only question that matters, right? This man sets up Jesus perfectly. This is an alley-oop. The rich young ruler sets up Jesus perfectly for a slam-dunk salvation message and altar call. All Jesus has to say is, salvation can't be earned. It's a gift from God. You must confess, repent, accept and believe in me, and you'll get eternal life, right? Like any good Christian would. Except Jesus doesn't do any of that. Instead, he first asks a question. Why do you ask me about what is good? And then, instead of a conversion, Jesus has a conversation. Verse 17, Jesus replied, there's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Enter life? This man's asking about eternal life. Why does Jesus say, well, if you want to enter life, and then he says to obey the commands. The rich man says, well, which ones? And then Jesus lists five of the 10 commandments. Now, the first four commandments in the 10 commandments deal with our relationship with God, and Jesus doesn't mention any of them. And then the final six deal with how we treat other people. And Jesus lists five of them. And you'll notice something that the first century readers would have also noticed. Jesus leaves one of the commandments out. The man replies, I've done those five. 
Jesus then says, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. Now, notice in Jesus's interaction with this man, all of the big important words are here in Jesus's answer. Eternal life, heaven, treasure. It's just that they're not used in any of the way that many Christians use them today. Shouldn't have Jesus given this man a clear answer. How does such a simple question, one that Jesus could have easily answered from a Christian perspective, turn into a difficult dialogue involving commandments, treasure, wealth, and ends with the man walking away? Now, I said that Jesus mentioned five of the six commandments. He left one out. Which one? He left out, thou shall not covet. To crave what someone else has. It's this disease of wanting more. So when Jesus says, there's only one thing left for you to do, sell everything and give it to the poor, Jesus is prescribing the antidote for this man's sickness, greed. Greed has no place in the world to come. If you want to enter life, leave greed behind. Jesus takes this man's question about then, the future, and then he drags it into the present. He drags the future into the present. So when the Bible talks about eternal life, it's not just referring to life later, it's referring to life now. And when the Bible speaks of heaven, it's not a detached reality someplace else, but rather the place where God's will is done. And our job as believers is to help bring heaven here into this age, bring the future to the present. A proper view of heaven leads us not to escape the world, but to fully engage with it, all with the anticipation of a coming day when things are actually on earth as they are in heaven. The rich man's heart is revealed by Jesus. And Jesus' call to let go of things has led the man to grip them more tightly. We've got to let go of our vices. There's an old fable of a swan and a crane, a beautiful swan uh, alighted by the banks of the water in which the crane was looking for snails. For a few moments, the crane looked at the swan and inquired, where do you come from? I come from heaven, the swan said. And where is heaven, said the crane. Heaven, said the swan. Heaven is this like, beautiful, have you never heard of heaven? And the beautiful bird went on to describe the grandeur of the eternal city. She told of streets of gold, gates and walls made of precious stones, the river of life, pure as crystal, upon whose banks is the tree of life, whose, tree, whose leaves shall be the healing for all nations. In eloquent terms, the swan sought to describe the hosts who live in this other world, but without arising the, sli the slightest interest on behalf of the crane. At the end of this beautiful telling, the crane asked, are there any snails there? Snails, repeated the swan. No, of course not. Then, said the crane, as it continued to search along the slimy banks of the pool, you can have your heaven, I want snails. The fable has a deep truth underlying it. 
How many of us have turned our back upon a higher calling in search of snails? How many of us will sacrifice our desire for God for the snails of our own selfishness? We so often are like this rich man. And Mark's gospel gives us a little, another insight into the rich man and Jesus. Look at chapter 10, verse 21 of the gospel of Mark. Looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. There's still one thing you haven't done. Go and sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Did you catch that? Mark says that Jesus felt genuine love for him. And then he says, go sell all your possessions. The reason Jesus is asking him to give it all away is not because Jesus is mad, but because he's madly in love. He's saying, give before what you possess possesses you. He was saying you are on a dangerous precipice in life and your wealth is about to master you. I'm prescribing something for you before wealth ruins your life. Even what appears to be harsh is only out of love for this young man. What is Jesus asking us to give up? He's not asking it out of duty or to be harsh. He is prescribing a remedy for the sickness that plagues us all. Jesus requires more than you ever thought, but offers more than you could ever ask. There was an account of a spiritual seeker who interrupted a busy life to spend a few days at a monastery. And I hope your stay is a blessed one, said the monk who showed the visitor his room. If you need anything, let us know and we'll teach you how to live without it. Why did the man in our story walk away grieved? It's because he didn't know how to live without it. Jesus says the word salvation, soteria, only twice in the Gospels. You know what Jesus talks about more than anything else and it's not close? The kingdom of God. I always thought that the kingdom of God was heaven when we died, the pearly gates. That's the kingdom of God. It's not. Jesus names it 118 times in the Gospels. Uh, and there are hundreds of more verses where he is describing it, where he is teaching about it, where he's living it, and showing what the kingdom of God really is like. Matthew 4, 17, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. In Matthew, it's called kingdom of heaven. Every time I ask, it's called kingdom of God. The gospel of John calls it eternal life. The kingdom of God is at hand or it is near. It is a state of affairs that is already beginning and demands immediate action comes from a medieval word, right? Central to the word kingdom is the word king. Okay, it's about a person. There's a person at the center of it. That person is Jesus. The kingdom is focused on a king. The kingdom is what it looks like when God is reigning, when God is in charge. The kingdom of God is the way the world is supposed to be. The world God wants it to be. The world we find our hearts yearning for. And the job for us as Christians is to help the world be the way it's supposed to be. Peace instead of violence, justice instead of injustice, compassion instead of indifference, love instead of hate. 
I have come to the conclusion that Jesus doesn't call our attention to leaving this world, but to loving this world. We cannot be a church that shouts at the world that there's life after death. We must be a church that shows the world that there's life before death. Let us end where we began, with Monopoly. Uh, Monopoly was originally patented in 1904, and it was called the Landlord's Game. Its original purpose was not to teach people the benefits of wealth, but to teach people about the dangers of concentrated wealth. How rent enriched property owners, but impoverished the tenants. Its creator, Elizabeth Magee, hoped that when children played the game, it would provoke their natural suspicion of unfairness and that they might carry that awareness into the world. You see, in the original game, the game ends when the person who started with the least doubles their income. Did you catch that? The original goal of Monopoly was to double the income of the poorest person at the table. Oh, how things have changed. Imagine a God who loves the world, who wants to heal, renew, restore all things. And he calls the people to be his agents in bringing heaven to earth, into alleviating suffering, to bringing justice and light and love. And then his people just condemn the world and focus on leaving it. Being a Christian is not about being in an exclusive club for the saved. It's about being a part of God's salvation project in the world. Jenna Lee Nardella says, we are not called to change the world. We are called to love the world. And to love the world, we are the ones who need to change. As we close out this sermon series called Church Words, if your atonement, if your sanctification, if your salvation has no real bearing on how you live and on how you treat others, then you are not living the Christian life. God, I pray that our salvation would be more than a get out of hell free card. That it would be, that our salvation would be the beginning of us being a part of making a difference for you, bringing heaven here being a part of your salvation project for the world, bringing your kingdom. So God, we do pray, as you taught us to pray, that your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it already is being done in heaven. Let us bring that future into the present. And God, start in us. We need you in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to thank you so much for joining us here at Prodigal Church Fresno. Uh, next week, we are having our end of summer Sunday, and so in person, we've got water slides and a food truck, and it's going to be a ton of fun. We encourage you, if you are in Central California, to come and visit us in person at Bullard High School. And those of, our, uh, of you who are watching or listening online, thank you so much. Uh, you are a part of us. We pray God's peace, blessings, and love upon you and your loved ones this season and beyond. Grace and peace.